The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, good morning again. For those who don't know or for guests and visitors, my name is Nick Kidwell. I am the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. It was great to celebrate a baptism together this morning. It's always a significant moment in the life of the church. I have to tell you, we were spared a catastrophe this week, though. It takes hours to fill this baptismal. So Friday, I turn it on and then just leave. I just left. I don't know where my head was at. And hours later, I'm sitting, talking to somebody, and it hits me. I left the water running in the baptismal. So I call Luke, and he's like, the Lord the Lord told me to go in the sanctuary for some reason. He's like, and I saw it was right at the top and it hadn't spilled over. So, <laughs> so we were spared. We almost baptized the building. <sighs> oh, but they are, baptisms are an exciting moment for us. They represent, as we said earlier, Um, the work that the Lord has done in someone's life. The act of being baptized, as we acknowledged, is a formal representation and declaration that we have united ourselves with Jesus Christ, our Lord. We read in the book of Romans, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. When, when we're baptized, we're claiming the death of Jesus Christ as our means of right standing before God. He died on our behalf, and baptism proclaims that we have accepted that gracious gift from him. But, but baptism isn't the end, and, and Matt has been walking with the Lord for a while, and, and when we come to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, it doesn't stop there, but it marks the beginning of a new life. In the book of John, Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus that if anyone's entered the kingdom of heaven, it wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must be born again. That's a common phrase among evangelicals, being born again, comes from that encounter. It's this idea that when we come to Jesus, new life is created. And that's what the verse in Romans that we read says after. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism into Christ, accepting the forgiveness of Jesus, is the beginning of the journey. We spoke a few weeks ago about the two paths that we have before us. There's the wide gate and the narrow gate. The wide gate is the way of the world. The way that, though at times can be easier, is the way that leads to destruction. And then there's the narrow gate. It's the gate of Christ. We are told it can be hard, yet it leads to life. In our passage this morning, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, shows us our first examples of people being confronted with this reality. Are they actually seeking Jesus And all that it means to be baptized into his death and walk in newness of life. Now, at this stage, they didn't know yet that part of it. But were they truly following him? Or are they actually desiring a wide path, a faith and a Christianity that is tailored for ease and is desired only when it's convenient to them? So please, if you would, turn 
with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verses 18 to 22. And I like to pray before we read God's word because we need his help. We need the Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts that we might understand and receive. So pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for all that we've been able to do this morning, singing together, worshiping together, hearing from your word, celebrating baptism in new life that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask now that you would continue to minister to us through your word, open our hearts that we might receive and understand what you have for us this morning. Help us to love you in sincerity. Be with me as I speak, that I might bring truth with clarity that we might receive and hear from you. Pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we recapped last week, we've now seen Matthew walking us through the reality that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. We've seen Matthew portray Jesus as the authoritative teacher, teaching about what life in light of the kingdom looks like. We've seen him display his power through healing, make clear that a decision needs to be made, whether one will follow him or not. And now we see the rubber meet the road with these two gentlemen. Our passage starts now. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. This would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee, would involve a boat journey. We'll see some of that in the weeks ahead. This means that though there were all these great crowds around him, the space would have been limited for the disciples who would go with him, whoever could fit into boats. So with this great crowd present, people marveling at the authority of his word, marveling at his wonder-working power, why was Christ wanting to go across to the other side? Why not stay here and minister well, I think there's many reasons for this. He, he, knew there must, he knew there were others on the other side who needed to hear from him. This message goes beyond his, his home borders. We know there are lessons that he has for the disciples on that journey and things that he's going to teach them, ways he's going to display his power. But I think one of the interesting reasons he moved on was to test the sincerity of those who were following him. I like how Matthew Henry, in his classic commentary, puts it, and this is, his language is a little archaic, so try and stick with me here as I read. He would try the multitudes that were about him, whether their zeal would carry them to follow him and attend on him when his preaching was removed to some distance. Many would be glad of such helps if they could have them at next door, who will not be at the pains to follow them to the other side. And thus Christ shook off those who were less zealous and the perfect were made manifest. Essentially, 
what he's saying here is there are all these people who are drawn to Christ, many who seem to be eager to listen to him, who enjoyed his healing power, but perhaps who didn't yet understand the full extent of what he was calling them to. And so Christ uses this location change to see where real priorities lie. Thus, we see the examples of these two people, people who, according to verse 21, are called disciples. These aren't said to be would-be or possible. These are people who had made some degree of investment and had been up to that point following Jesus' ministry. We see in the scriptures the word disciple used in various ways. Sometimes it's used broadly, a broad description of those who were gathered around, who were listening, who were in some way attentive to Jesus' teaching. Sometimes we see disciples used for the twelve, what would become the twelve apostles. And then we get descriptions of what a real, earnest, true disciple of Christ looks like, the one who bears fruit, the one who perseveres, and the ones who build their houses on the rock of Christ, as we heard a week ago. The true disciple is the one, as we will see today, who forsakes all else to be with their Lord. A sincere follower of Christ realizes that submission to Him means rebirth. It means new life. It means a radical reorientation of priorities and expectations in the world. We don't just add Jesus into our life. Jesus consumes our life. And so there's two things we're going to look at this morning as it pertains to being a follower of Christ, the things we see in each of these little vignettes. Following Christ comes at a cost and requires undivided commitment. So first, following Christ comes at a cost. I have apparently been into construction imagery lately. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know I gave an imagery of the Surfside condo in Miami But the first thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about this when I was considering this point was a recent news story I heard about a skyscraper that sits unfinished in New York City. It's one seaport tower. It's a 60-story residential skyscraper that already looms high into the sky. It's 60 stories up. But when you look at it, you come to realize there is zero construction work taking place on it, and there hasn't been for over a year. Why is that? Well, when they began construction work, they didn't properly shore up the foundation. They cut corners, much like the Surfside condo we talked about a few weeks ago, and they failed to properly assess all that would be involved in making the soil suitable for this tower. So as the tower went up, it began to lean. For a tower, quite significantly, they say three inches. That's a lot, I guess, in tower talk. And this issue is so significant that they can't even put windows on the building because if they did, it would act like a big sail and it would lean even further. So there's no windows the higher you go up. So the building now sits with no further construction on it, no clear solution on how to fix it. It is safe as it is. It's not going to fall. But construction cannot continue without a solution. And any possible solution will be a complete nightmare and cost tons of money. As one report read, the longer it sits abandoned, the more expensive it gets. And nobody wants to foot that bill. According to The Real Deal, nearly all prospective buyers have pulled out of their deals, and hundreds of millions of dollars have already been sunk into the construction work. 
The tower stands like a blemish on the skyline of New York. It's a testimony to the folly of man and what happens when we cut corners and we don't fully understand the cost of our endeavors. Well, the Lord uses this very example when it comes to discipleship in the book of Luke. In the gospel of Luke, we hear the Lord use the term counting the cost in relation to following him. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is exactly what we have in New York. A half-finished building is good to no one. It's useless, and it was a great waste of energy and resources going into it. Well, the Lord is not looking to collect half-hearted disciples who don't understand what it means to be his follower and who will not see the construction project through to the end. So, so here we, we see this first man approach him. We're told he's a scribe. Now, this is significant. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the scribes and the Pharisees are not often portrayed as being very friendly towards Jesus. Yet here we have this scribe, and I believe this scribe is to a certain extent sincere in his desire to follow the Lord. This isn't a scribe coming at him like we'll see in the future trying to trap him in his words. This is a a scribe who's looking to follow Christ, and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, it's unclear to what extent this scribe was referencing where he'd go with Christ. There's a way to interpret this that would seem to indicate he's just alluding to going across the sea with him, but not necessarily somewhere further, or you can interpret it as something more grand. He is willing to go wherever it is with Christ, whichever. We have to acknowledge that for this scribe, any desire to accompany Jesus came with some risk for him. It would have cost him socially to have followed Jesus in any form. Again, throughout the Gospels, we see the scribes are not generally warm to Christ as the Messiah and are, in fact, quite adversarial. And so this scribe was willing to make some kind of social sacrifice to listen to Christ. But Christ knows what's in the heart of mankind. Christ knows what lays ahead for himself. Christ knows what the narrow path entails, and he knows that this man does not understand what he's signing up for. So he responds to this man by saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We like to bring in lots of, you know, object lessons and examples, so I plan that, really. There's this sense in which Jesus is saying, you think I'm a teacher just like other rabbis. You think following me may mean some social exclusion, but you don't understand the road that lays ahead. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have that. The ministry that Jesus was about to set out upon was going to be a rough one. Sleepless nights, 
Nights spent on boats, tossed at sea, opposition and confrontation, fickle hearts and deaf ears, an itinerant ministry relying on the hospitality and the generosity of others. This was not going to be an easy or a comfortable ride. And so he says, is that what you're ready for? Back in Luke, right before the illustration of the tower, Christ says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Christ knew then that the end of this journey for him was death on the cross and ultimately persecution and opposition for those who stood as his witnesses. What we saw in this scribe was someone who liked the teaching, liked the miracles, but didn't seem to grasp that this was a radical call that came with a greater cost than he was conceiving of. This same radical call exists for us today. We spoke on Palm Sunday about the four soils, the soil of the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the fertile. Christ here is discerning the soils. He's looking for those people where the seed goes in, is planted, and will bear fruit. Who know who he is and what he's calling them to. That way, when the heat comes and things get challenging, they don't jump ship quickly but persevere to the end. Following Christ Jesus, though it is the greatest thing that we could ever do, do not get that wrong, it leads to the greatest joy that we could ever imagine And in many ways brings us peace and stability in this life. Following Christ is also a hard path. Though Christ went to the cross and died for our sake, something we will never need to do, paying the penalty for our sins, we're told to carry our crosses daily. We will suffer with him for the sake of his name, for his glory. And we have to be prepared for that. Following Christ is a life on mission. It's a wartime mentality. It means doing whatever it takes to turn from sin. Not growing complacent, but fighting and trusting, walking in repentance and in fellowship with others. Following Christ means holding our possessions loosely. Following Christ at times will mean persecution for the sake of of his name. Christ says, if the world hated me, it will hate you. As Christians in the West, for a long time, we have experienced unprecedented peace. And for many years, society looked in favor on the Judeo-Christian worldview, biblical ethics. However, as we all know, this is changing. And it's changing quickly. There's been a worldview shift, and it's getting harder to live as Christ has called us to without rejection. As Christians, when we come to know Jesus, we must understand that the way will not always be easy. We have to have messages like this that remind us there will be adversity in this life if we choose to follow Jesus Christ. The truth will not always be accepted. A life lived with Christ will be full and it will be rich, but it won't always be comfortable. Walking in faith with Christ means that we die to ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew 16, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
That means that we hold our life and everything in it with open hands. Christ might one day call you to give up a high-paying job to serve him in ministry. I know examples like this. I think of our friend Phil Over, who had a very good career, but felt the Lord calling him to serve youth in FCA. That's costly. It might mean selling all that we have for the sake of the mission. It might mean taking steps of faith at times when we don't know exactly where we're going to lay our head tomorrow. It might be taking a drastic step to fight sin in some way. Throw out your smartphone, cut out TV channels to guard your eyes. Sounds ridiculous to say that's drastic, but it can be a drastic step for us, and so forth. No matter who we are, we ought always be considering, are we willing, are we truly willing to follow the Lord wherever He goes, wherever He's leading us, or will we only go so far as we're comfortable? Will we trust Him? And we can trust Him. Another way of looking at this question is, who are we committed to following? Which takes us to the second man who approaches Christ. A similar point is drawn here, but it's a slightly different angle with the idea of commitment. So following Christ comes at a cost, and following Christ requires undivided commitment. When you're committed to something, you're willing to pay whatever the cost And as we see from this second man, Christ makes clear there is to be no higher allegiance in our life than him. Our commitment to him is to be complete and all-encompassing. We read, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, we can read this. And immediately feel defensive for this man or feel some confusion at the seeming lack of compassion coming from the Lord. And because some try to lessen the, and, and, and because of this, some try to lessen the abruptness of what's being said here by hypothesizing just what this situation is. It, it is unclear exactly what this situation is for this man culturally. Some say there's a possibility that his father was near death, but not quite dead, so the man's wanting to wait around for him for an undetermined amount of time before signing on with Christ. It's possible, though unlikely, the father had just died, and there were some immediate arrangements that needed to be made. It's possible that this is referring to a ritual that usually involved the eldest son attending to the father's bones one year after his death, which would have meant that this man is possibly asking to wait for up to a year before really following along with Christ. However, I would argue that understanding the exact situation here really doesn't matter that much. Because in any scenario, whether this man is asking for a great length of time or a short length of time, whether he is asking something that's over the top or understandable, the magnitude and potential offensiveness of what Christ says to him remains. He's asking this man to make an absolute commitment to follow him no matter what the cost. An absurd request if Jesus weren't the Son of God, which we know he is. 
And he knows, again, what's going on in the heart of this man. And what we get here, just to say, is not a blanket command from the Lord on how we're to handle family affairs. Don't think that this means the Lord tells us to be callous about our families or what we think about them. We know from elsewhere in Scripture, God commands us to do what we can to be faithful, to care for our families. In fact, in the book of 1 Timothy, it says if someone is careless and thoughtless and doesn't tend to those in his household, we're told that he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God cares a lot about us respecting and caring for those responsibilities we have in our life. So God isn't telling this man as a general rule that he shouldn't care about a proper burial for his father. What he identifies here in this man is a heart that's divided in devotion, a heart that isn't yet fully committed to Christ. We see this type of encounter elsewhere in the scriptures. Take the rich young ruler, for example, who comes up to Christ, and Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, sell all you have and give to the poor. He knows that the thing that this rich young ruler can't bear to part with is his money. Jesus doesn't tell us all that we have to sell, all we have and give to the poor, but he did to that rich young ruler to expose a higher commitment in his heart. Well, here he says to this man, the call for you to come is now. Do you hold on to your family devotionally in your heart higher than you do to me? I can imagine a scenario where this man says, Lord, let me come and follow you. And Jesus responds, oh, you of great faith, indeed, you will follow, but first tend to your household, for that is fitting. I can imagine that. But here Jesus sees what this man needs exposed in his heart. He has an allegiance that is higher than Christ. He says, let the dead tend to the dead, meaning let the spiritually dead deal with that. We're taking the message of life to the world. We think, shouldn't this man be able to take care of this commitment, tend to his father? Wouldn't that be better? Well, if the Lord just told these disciples, knowing all of them, to get in the boat and cross with him, then no, going with him is the thing that is to be done in that moment unless he says otherwise. Makes me think of Abraham, who was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. How confusing that must have been for Abraham. Isn't it wrong to sacrifice my son? Why would God ask this of me? Yet Abraham knew God. He was sure that for whatever reason God had commanded this of him. And so Abraham chose to follow even in the darkness. Because he knew that God would work all things out in the end. He trusted him. He knew God didn't delight in human sacrifice. He knew God had promised to make a great nation through his son Isaac. We're told in the book of Hebrews that because of this, Abraham believed that God could even raise Isaac from the dead should this go through. So he believed that God would provide even if he didn't understand. And we know, of course, God did. He sent a ram in that moment and then ultimately, he sent his own son to die as a sacrifice for all of our sins. There will be lots of times in our lives where something else feels like the highest priority. Where we don't understand why the Lord is asking us to do what he's asking us to do. 
where our commitment to Christ is tested. But the reality is, as followers of Jesus Christ, if God calls us to something, we must trust him with all that that entails. When some people come to Christ, their families hate them for it. I know those situations in our church. Are they then to reject the Lord their God for the sake of peace among their family? By no means. For that peace would be a false peace and one that doesn't benefit anybody. There might be some called to the mission field who have family, parents, who don't like it, but that doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't go. We use discernment for these things. We seek counsel for these things. We pray. We root ourselves in God's word. And sometimes the right answer, I believe some scenarios, the right answer might have been for this man to stay. Sometimes the right answer is for us not to do something, but sometimes it might be. Sometimes the things that the Lord calls us to might make us or others uncomfortable. I remember I went on a summer uh, project, a retreat with Campus Crusade for Christ that lasted all summer long, and, and they taught you how to evangelize and share your faith, and you were doing Bible studies the whole time. Well, I come back, and I am just so excited for the Lord. I'm eager. I'm, I'm hyped up for evangelism. And I remember having a conversation with the parent of one of my friends who said, just, just be careful. You, you don't want to be too radical. <laughs> the devotion they saw in me made them uncomfortable. And perhaps I was a little overzealous in my youth. That, that might have been there too. But the reality is the call of Christ is one that is radical. It means that what God says, where Christ leads, trumps how we feel, trumps our family ties, trumps our bank accounts, trumps our security, trumps our safety, trumps our health, trumps our very lives. This boat is about to depart, and Jesus says to this man, are you in or are you out? As many of you know, I'm a big wheeler and dealer. I like to look for deals and bargains. Years ago, it used to be Craigslist. Now it's Facebook Marketplace. And people will often comment and marvel at the deals that I'm able to find and the things I'm able to get. But, but there's one thing I've learned along the way that has scored me a lot of these wonderful deals. You have to be committed. So if you're looking for something, you have to be committed. When something pops up that's a good deal, there's no time for hesitation or delay. If you message someone, you say, is this available? Could I come check it out? You're not going to get it. There's just no way you will get it. As soon as they pick up that you're not 100% sure if you want this item, they're moving on to the next person. And I can say from experience, when I do jump on something, when I am ready to make a 45-minute drive if I have to, when I wasn't planning to, to go pick something up, I often get it. You got to jump. You say, I'll take this. I'll come today. When can I come? Can I Venmo you? It works. That's how you get someone to pay attention to you on Facebook Marketplace. It's how you get those deals. You can pay me later for the advice. <laughs> but I'm ready. I, I'm committed. I'm willing to pay the cost and put forth the effort to pick it up. Christ sees the man here in front of him, and he sees that there's hesitation. He sees that he's got some higher allegiances in his heart. He sees that there's not full commitment 
to what Christ is calling him to do. If we're to follow the Lord, again, we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Now, with that said, let me also say this. The Lord is never going to lead us to sin. The Lord is never going to have us do something that is wrong. That's why we root ourselves in the word and we pray and we seek God and godly counsel so we know if we are indeed being led by the Lord in some endeavor or step But the Lord will at times lead us to do things that seem confusing or we don't fully understand. Things that might be a bit messy for various reasons or might push and stretch the faith of those around us just as our faith is being pushed and stretched as well. But whatever the Lord calls us to, we can trust Him. Our Lord is on a mission and He invites us to follow Him. But to follow him, we have to put all of our faith and all of our trust in him. We are not to be people with mixed allegiances. Unfortunately, as we know, all of us at times do cling to things other than Christ, though. Not saying that if we've placed our trust in Christ, we are perfect in this sense. And we thank God for his mercy and his grace that our devotion does not have to be absolutely perfect to be saved. His grace covers that. We will stumble at times. However, we should not be content with anything less than complete surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. True discipleship means counting the cost and committing fully to follow him no matter where he leads. If you're here and you haven't made this commitment to Christ, I want to encourage you. This morning we have acknowledged a lot of hardship that can come in this call because that's what our passage has for us today. But following this Jesus, though yes, it can be hard, is a true delight. The passage we read earlier said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We may think accepting Jesus comes at too great a cost. We don't want to give up some sin. We don't, we don't want to have Jesus be our highest priority. We don't want to have to admit that we are sinful. We don't want to be led by someone else. However, it's only by losing our life in this way that we will truly find it. In following Christ, we are freed from sin. Guilt and condemnation no longer have to torment us. He bears good fruit through us. He works in the lives of others because of us. He empowers us by His Holy Spirit. And though it can be hard, there is no greater journey that we can set out upon than one with Him. There's no higher call that we can attain. No more exciting path that can lie ahead. I encourage you to count the cost, but to know that in the end, the cost, our very lives, is nothing compared to what we gain. And then I encourage you to commit yourself fully to this glorious Savior. Church, we all must do the same. There's a cost to following the Lord. But remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
relationship with our God, getting into the boat with Christ, if you will, is the treasure hidden in the field. It's the unexplainable joy. It's the glory beyond what we can imagine. It's the hope that is unshakable. It's the blessed hope of eternal life with our God. Any sacrifice, any cost in this life is a light and momentary thing when compared to gaining Christ Jesus. So let's not be afraid to trust him. If you felt the Lord tugging on your heart in some way, you felt conviction over some area, if the Lord's been nudging you to take a step of faith, I encourage you, trust him. Follow him. He's going to take care of you. It may be hard at times, but I guarantee you, he will be good. And he's working all things out for your good, if you trust him. So let's go this week and let's be fully committed to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you give us words like this to remind us that there are challenges that come. There may be hardship at times as we follow you, Lord. But I do just pray for each of our hearts that you would embolden us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would follow wherever you lead, fully trusting that just as you have given of your life for us, that we might have the hope of eternal life, you will uphold us and you will work all things out for our good. Father, we ask that we would not be people with divided loyalty, divided commitment. Father, we know the good that you do through us when we are fully committed to you, trusting you for whatever it is you may be leading us in. And I pray as we do that, God, prepare good works to go ahead of us, that we would step out in faith, that we would see people affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would see your kingdom expand and spread as we trust you. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.